Good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's emeritus uh, with Firestorm. Um, it's a lot of future because Monica Serrano's talk uh, this evening on um, drug violence and human rights in Mexico. Now, um, there is no doubt that um, Mexico is experiencing a very great human rights crisis. Um, as with any kind of case of massive and uh, extreme case uh, of violence, numbers will always be contested. Um, but here are some numbers um, for you. Um, on some accounts, um, Mexico has 27,000 people disappeared or missing. Uh, torture is widespread and amply documented uh, across the country. Extrajudicial killings are rampant. Arbitrary detention is frequently used, including by uh, armed forces involved in uh, operations in Mexico. Um, um, and then there is violence attributed to organized crime, generating very, generating very high uh, levels of homicide. Um, those bringing this situation to the attention of domestic and internationally, human rights defenders, journalists, so on, continue to be threatened, uh, harassed, attacked, or killed. All of this is uh, amply documented, both by Mexican um, authorities as well as by non state actors. Impunity is the norm. What to make of Mexico then? Yeah. Um, no one, and this is my segue to Monica Serrano, because no one is better placed to uh, explain Mexico's human rights crisis than Monica Serrano. Uh, Monica, as many of you know, is a professional in national relations, uh, in Colegio de Mexico, and has various uh, positions uh, in, in, in the UK and in, in the US. Um, widely, uh, Monica has widely uh, studied uh, Mexico's uh, drug, drug violence, uh, but also has a body of work on uh, such varied issues as uh, the responsibility to protect, um, and uh, also more generally on international human rights uh, politics. So we are absolutely delighted to have Monica here. Yet again, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Um, and Monica's talk, as I mentioned, is on drug violence and human rights in Mexico. And she has promised to uh, identify some of the drivers and explanations for the very high levels of violence that Mexico is experiencing. So thank you again, Monica. Thank you, Paris. It is a pleasure to be uh, back here and, and to have the opportunity to talk on, on a subject that really it keeps me awake at night. Um, and um, it's, the, the talk is based on a, on a chapter that um, hopefully will be published soon, in which I go back to some of the violence that either preceded or coincided uh, with the moment that we identify with transition to democracy to try to account and, and identify the turning points that may help us explain uh, what went wrong uh, in the country and, and how is it that we ended up uh, where we are. Some of the uh, main motivations uh, that led me to, to write this paper uh, concern my long interest in drug policy and the impact in drug <coughs> policy uh, on violence and human <coughs> rights uh, violations, um, as well as my concern with the way in which transition to democracy appears to have been kidnapped by drug violence. And uh, my uh, increasing doubts as to whether human rights instruments and norms uh, could help uh, the country turn the page to, to drug violence. So while I have a, a paper that I hope to be able to, to circulate soon, um, some of what I will be saying is, if you like, work in progress in the sense that I keep on thinking about these themes. So as I prepare the, the talk, I went back 
to try to identify some of the main <coughs> the main points, if you like, in the pending agenda on accountability for human rights in Mexico. And, and of course, perhaps the first one that that um, would pop out would be the, the case of Aguas Blancas, the, the massacre of peasants in Guerrero that in 1995 led to a transcendental ruling, in fact, by the Supreme Court, in which the Supreme Court identified responsibilities and signaled potential uh, actors for responsibility, including the governor, the prosecutor, the state secretary of government and, and the head of the state police. As some of you may know, the state governor was removed in 1997 as a result of uh, the crisis unleashed by, by this massacre. But the fact is that the responsibilities were never investigated uh, nor prosecuted. Another episode that would have been in an agenda for accountability in a normal transition to democracy is, of course, uh, the case of Acteal in Chiapas, uh, another massacre that has led to contending interpretations. There is a CIDER research that suggests that uh, it was more identity-driven. There are others who point to paramilitary involvement and, and, and the collision by, by the, the military. And there is, of course, uh, the 2001 report by the National Commission on Human Rights, uh, the report on the dirty war, and, and the acceptance for the first time by the government, uh, the acknowledgement of the state responsibility for uh, the crimes committed in the context of the student movement in, in 1968, the creation of uh, the, the special Fiscalia by, by Fox to try to investigate crimes of the past, the, the disillusion uh, with that exercise. But I think that already uh, enables us to identify some of the obstacles that were going to be in the way. Um, as some of you may remember, uh, FEMOS was created, but at the same time, the Fox government uh, was, in a way, forced to roll back on decisions, which included uh, the promise to appoint uh, a civilian minister or to uh, to withdraw certainly the military from the, the war on drugs. And not only he reversed on those decisions, but he appointed uh, a general as attorney general. So FEMOS, having been uh, allocated within the attorney general office, had in fact to contend uh, with uh, a military attorney general. The patterns of impunity in Mexico uh, today, that, that would have been the agenda for a normal transition to democracy, which is one of the main points that I develop um, in the paper. And, and the patterns of impunity now uh, suggest some resemblance with uh, what was the case at the time, clearly in relation to the way in which investigation and prosecution for homicides was and remains rare. But the difference is that the rate of homicides and, and killings have uh, uh, rocketed over the past decade. So what we have now is that uh, in terms of uh, patterns of, of current patterns of impunity is that as crime rocketed, investigations, prosecutions, and convictions remained in the best of all possible scenarios stable. In, in some cases, they worsened. So of, of the total uh, crimes uh, reported uh, between 1999 and 2012, only 14.3% of crimes committed at the federal level ended in conviction, 
and only 7.2% of those uh, committed at the state level uh, ended up in sentences. Uh, in Guerrero, a state in which the annual rate of conviction for homicide was never above 10%, it in fact declined to 5%. And in Chihuahua, and I think these two cases illustrate the argument as I will try to present it in the course of the, of the talk. Um, in Chihuahua, the annual rate of conviction for homicide for the period 2007 and 2011 was around 2.4%. Uh, um, I have more figures here to which we can, which we, we can come back, but um, <coughs> let me now uh, say a few words about uh, what human rights actors and human rights organizations are, so, are saying about uh, Mexico. I don't, I don't know if some of you have had a chance to see the report uh, produced by the Justice Initiative. Um, undeniable atrocities in which uh, they in fact uh, refer to a, a document issued by the uh, Office for the Prevention of Genocide and the Responsibility to Protect to define what they consider atrocity crimes which is the main contribution of the report. They claim what is going on in Mexico now amounts to atrocity crimes uh, perpetrated both by state actors, the military and the police, but also by some criminal organizations, in particular the Zetas. They refer to the Zetas on the basis of the control of the territory that the Zetas at one point uh, achieved. So uh, what they do in the report is to <coughs> identify the main sources for impunity and, and they document in a very impeccable way uh, the sources of impunity to conclude uh, that uh, what's, what goes on in Mexico on a regular and chronic <coughs> way is a bias towards undercounting of the crimes that are happening uh, as we speak, a bias which is absolutely clear and, and undeniable, a bias towards uh, classify as lesser offenses what in other situations would uh, very clearly uh, acquire the status of torture or enforced disappearance or uh, um, uh, execution and, and instead of that uh, how prosecutors uh, tend to, to incline in favor of abuse of, of authority, ass assault, and the privation of liberty. The complications uh, in terms of definitions, classifications, the lack of uh, legislation at the state level to imprint the crimes uh, uh, in state legislations, and of course the federal state a relationship or jurisdiction. These conclusions that uh, very prominently <coughs> appear in the, the report on deniable atrocities were echoed uh, recently in the light of the controversy that was unleashed by the decision of the State Department to uh, grant, to certify that Mexico has made sufficient progress in ending torture, disappearances, and extrajudicial killings. So uh, Senator Patrick Leahy referred to the pattern of failing to investigate, to a pattern also by which uh, Mexican authorities appear to be destroying evidence, uh, to threat witnesses, and uh, one doesn't need but to look at the way in which the evidence concerning the 43 students was manipulated by uh, the man who was the, the head of uh, the CIEDO, the special office within the Attorney General Office that deals with organized crime, uh, to uh, see that uh, the manipulation <coughs> and, and the destruction of evidence is, 
is a fact in Mexico, or the recent appointment of uh, the person to lead the key office that releases the, apart from INEGI, that releases the figures on homicides and, and um, high-impact crimes. Uh, that uh, appointment has been very controversial given the need to, uh, to trust whatever information comes. So um, there's no doubt that uh, the, the judgment, the verdict of the report by the Justice Initiative or the uh, opinion of Senator Patrick Leahy have a very sound uh, and, and very concrete basis in, in, in Mexico's current reality. But having said that, uh, I, what I wanted to, to do in this presentation is to refer to the paper in which I basically developed three points. One has to do with uh, the argument that uh, I think uh, has uh, by now, uh, there's a consensus uh, among many experts in Mexico and beyond Mexico in that militarization preceded the Calderón administration, that yes, drug-related violence significantly shifted uh, after uh, Calderón's decision to declare uh, an all-out war on drugs, and uh, all this as an attempt to try, as I said before, to identify the main turning points in drug-related <coughs> violence and to uh, try to, uh, to identify the context in which human rights violations are taking place in order to try to assess the way in which human rights instruments and, and accountability instruments could help Mexico turn the page. Um, so that's the main motivation behind uh, the paper. And what I do and what I will do briefly is to talk about uh, a transition to democracy and how it coincided with a turn in drug violence uh, by referring to three of the criminal wars that accompanied the Fox administration and that took place in Tijuana along the three main border cities in Tijuana, in uh, El Paso and uh, Nuevo Laredo. As I have already suggested, um, but, but let me now say it explicitly, uh, at the turn of the Mexico, uh, sorry, at the turn of the century, Mexico appeared to be ideally positioned to make an uneventful, an uneventful transition to democracy. The country had successfully navigated the uncertain and sometimes turbulent waters of transition to democracy. Uh, there, there were times in which many feared that political violence could trigger off a major crisis Political violence had, in fact, figured prominently through the years of transition. From 1998, there were fears that uh, the, the contested <coughs> election could derail uh, the process of political liberalization. Then, of course, there were the number of members of the PRD who were killed through the years of the transition, not to mention 1994 and the way in which uh, the outbreak of the Zapatista revolt and the chain of high-level political assassinations, which were already very much tainted by, by drug and the drug problem, um, appeared to threaten to knock off the delicate balance upon which the transition held. Against all the odds, the country survived these major shocks and managed to navigate its course to uh, democratic transitions. The, the trends were duly acknowledged in a rapidly expanding literature on electoral politics and transition to democracy, but the warnings coming from the changes taking place in the illicit drug economy were on the whole ignored by this literature. And of course, by the actors actively involved uh, in, the in the transition. 
So as democratic transition set in, the excitement was soon overtaken by mounting security concerns, and before long, the combination of internal and external security pressures faced the first democratically elected governments with a set of demands that far exceeded their original forecast. From an internal point of view, of, for, from an internal point of view we had the deinstitutionalization of the hegemonic party system that eroded the regime's capacity to uh, uphold the formal and informal rules upon which stability had long rested. The weakening of presidential authority had opened up in turn a vacuum that was rapidly filled by both legitimate and illegitimate actors, including <coughs> criminal groups. And uh, while the erosion of central and institutional authority had of course a long history, it clearly coincided with a major transformation in Mexico's security environment that from an internal point of view concerned with major changes taking place in the illicit drug economy, uh, more specifically the opening of the cocaine transit economy, and from an external point of view by the impact of 9-11 and the added pressures, security pressures uh, already facing the new democratic administration. So what the, first, the, what the Fox government tried to do at first was to try to recalibrate drug policies. As I said, he had promised to, to withdraw the military from, uh, the, from drug policy, from, from the responsibility it had been granted under Cedillo to tackle the drug problem, and to uh, uh, proceed uh, with uh, um, a change in terms of, of internal uh, security, the internal management of, of security. What uh, happened was that the, the, the security crisis that was unfolding soon called into question the capacity of security agencies and judicial institutions to cope with a rapidly changing drug challenge. The Fox administration uh, proceeded by downplaying the intractable challenges and by adopting what some have called a laissez-faire policy towards drug trafficking with an intention to denarcotize uh, the relationship with the US. We have to, to remember that uh, the main point in the agenda in relation with the US was to try to negotiate a migration uh, reform. However, the perception that the drug problem was intensifying rather than fading was in fact uh, taking hold. It is impossible to underplay the significance of all the factors at play in, in the profound crisis of credibility that have come to haunt Mexico's democracy in the course of three successive elected governments. The myriad of problems have become clearly more acute. Uh, I have already mentioned some, but let me just refer to the crisis of credibility of the electoral authority, the way in which the main political parties are increasingly being perceived as cartel organization, the widespread systemic corruption and impunity, not to mention the impact of almost zero economic growth. And while these factors help explain the erosion of the presidency's authority, the rising a autonomous power of governors across parties and the unbridled corrupt practices registered in many states, they in themselves, I don't think, can't explain the carving up of the country into lawless zones, the distinct nature of <coughs> corruption generated by drug trafficking, or its metamorphosizing into organized crime. The symptoms of democratic decay are obvious, I think, for all of us to see, and they indicate discernible political responsibilities. But attributing drug-related corruption and drug violence <coughs> to democratic failure can lead us to the wrong conclusions. As a number of researchers have argued, the system of predatory accumulation that results from the allocation of illicit rents 
and their extra-legal extraction sets drug-related corruption apart. And certainly democratic and party alternation disrupted criminal political relations and played a part in heightened criminal competitions. But such processes cannot explain in and of themselves criminal competition nor the unfolding criminal wars, uh, to which I will refer uh, in a few minutes. In, in the light of this, and given the combination of the factors already operating in the illicit drug economy, the unmatched illicit revenues, the rise of a transit service, cocaine economy, the revamping of the criminal market around big regional drug cartels, as well as a virtually unchecked arms availability that will become uh, more acute uh, after the end of the ban on assault weapons uh, in 2004, it is unlikely that a more proactive drug policy could have done much to prevent Mexico's collapse into criminal violence or the capture of the state institutions. And here I can just flag uh, an argument that I'm trying to develop uh, in, a, in another investigation, which is uh, the way in which the scenario that Mexico confronted at the point of uh, transition to democracy basically presented uh, uh, government authorities with three choices. One uh, was to, to try to proceed with a normal agenda for democratic transition and, 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 a, and a change uh, in, in, in democratic security terms that would have been the the standard agenda of, of democratic change, which was basically not on offer because of the way the drug problem uh, hit. Um, another one, which was in fact what ended up uh, being uh, by default the option, which was uh, the authoritarian involution and the criminal capture of the state. And the third, which is what I have called elsewhere the Colombian model, which is the stabilization of an electoral democracy at high uh, levels of uh, repression and, and use of force. So how can I explain these choices that, that Mexico confronted? I have basically referred to the opening of the cocaine transit economy uh, to, to explain this. And, um, Another point of transition to democracy, Mexican authorities basically uh, were confronted with two main challenges in relation to the drug problem. Was the first one concerned the ability shown by Mexican drug traffickers to maintain their control over their traditional market position, which basically referred to 80% of the US marijuana market and 30% of the heroin market in the US. But the other one had to do with the opening of the cocaine economy, uh, which uh, became evident in a series of episodes that were uh, evident through the second half of the 1980s and that basically uh, referred to the killing of the DEA agent uh, Camarena and the dismantling of the federal uh, uh, Dirección Federal de Seguridad, the Federal Directory of Security, which was the main anti-narcotic uh, agency. And these events already indicated that the drug problem was moving and mutating at an accelerated pace. But a critical element behind this trend was tighter drug market competition, which was in turn caused very clearly by drug enforcement efforts on both sides of the border, both by the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, in, in terms of Mexico, the main event had to do with the arrest of Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo in 1989 that, from my point of view, also symbolizes the start of the decapitation strategy, which is now identified as a major factor behind the unbridled violence and, and human rights violations affecting the country. Uh, this first arrest in 1989, it gave way to the emergence of a constellation of major criminal cartels, 
uh, in uh, Baja California under the control of the Arellano Felix, in Sinaloa, El Chapo, uh, and, and Ismael Zambada, the gold cartel with Juan Garcia Abrego at first, um, and upon his arrest in 1996, which will again mark the first case of extradition for drug-related offenses to the U.S., before the extradition, uh, uh, the Constitution was amended in Mexico um, to allow Mexican nationals to be extradited. At that point, the Cedillo administration resorted to the fact that uh, Juan Garcia Abrego had dual nationality to deport him uh, to the U.S. So from <coughs> the point of view of Mexico, that uh, drug policy decision, the arrest of uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo and the way it led to the emergence of these big regional organizations played uh, a very important role and uh, as important as that or perhaps more important was the decision of the U.S. to seal the access of the Florida for the cocaine bound to the U.S. coming from Colombia and that decision completely shifted the flow of cocaine on uh, to Mexico, Mexico's territory. So with 10.5 million Americans reporting having used cocaine in the early 80s, a figure that doubled to 22 million users in, 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 in the mid-1980s, and with consumption peaking in the early 1990s, the U.S. had established itself as the largest cocaine market <coughs> and Mexico as a major transit point for this market. And, and the repercussions of that change uh, would be, uh, I can summarize them, I think, to two main or three main uh, points. One had to do with the way in which these regional cartels became uh, ever more powerful, bidding for control of this uh, market and the way in which that competition and, and their ability to take control of that market by uh, changing what at the beginning started as a, a, a contract, if you like, a kind of contract with Colombian traffickers by which Mexican organizations would, pay, uh, would be paid a fee for transporting the cocaine was eventually uh, swapped for in-kind payments so the, 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 these revenues, these unexpected revenues, increase the power of these organizations to corrupt and to coerce uh, state authorities where, when they showed reluctance to, to accept the terms offered by corruption. And that is the main point upon which I base the different nature of drug-related corruption that sets it apart from the type of political corruption that we normally associate with the capture or appropriation of public uh, funds or the use of, of public office for private purposes. So to give you an idea, on an average fee of $1,250 per kilo of coca transported into the U.S., the estimates of the income accumulated by one single Mexican intermediary between 85 and 86 oscillated around $75 million. And once Mexican traffickers started charging in kind, profits rocketed. So by the mid-1990s, U.S. officials estimated the total value of Mexican drug, drug exports at around $10 billion, whereas Mexican estimates put the value as high as $30 billion. So this was the money in the hands uh, of uh, criminal organizations to corrupt or coerce uh, authorities. The efforts of the outgoing Cedillo government were clearly not sufficient to keep up with the frantic pace of the new illicit market. The issues soon become clear, while high rates of, ro of rotation in key official positions and institutional instability were symptomatic of fundamental problems in the state's enforcement capacity. The escalation of turf wars among trafficking organizations provided a forceful indication of the violent changes taking place in the Mexican drug marketplace. 
the Arellano Felix organization, which is the, the first case that I will be uh, referring to, in the early 1980s controlled 40% of the coca uh, transship to the US. So let me briefly refer to the, to the three cases uh, and, and the way in which the unfolding violence and the nature of this violence was very closely associated with drug policy decisions, more precisely the capture of uh, the leaders of uh, these criminal organizations. The rise of, of the Arellano Felix coincided uh, with alternation and the, and the first opposition government in the state of Baja California in 1989. And uh, again, uh, an indication of the power achieved by this organization from the early days uh, is given by the way in which roads in the region, including the Mexicali San Luis Colorado Road, were often closed at night to allow the landing of airplanes loaded with cocaine. State capture, police capture, was a main instrument by which uh, the Arellano Felix seized control of uh, the San Diego-Tijuana corridor, um, together with an extreme use of violence. And, and the reason why I think these unfolding criminal wars are very important is because they, I think, illustrate very clearly the kind of violence that is going on on a daily basis in Mexico, and, and the mechanics of that violence and human rights violations are perhaps in a smaller case and more uh, dispersed, but are, have clear echoes of what was going on already in Tijuana, in Chihuahua, subsequently, and, and, in, and in Nuevo Laredo as well. So the capture of police officers was obviously a very important uh, side of the equation. In 1993, the FBI published a list of names of over 100 police officers who, in their view, were in the Arellano Felix payroll. <laughs> Enrique Harari, then head of the Federal uh, Road Police, which is the police that preceded today's Federal Police, uh, was also found uh, in the payroll of the Arellano Felis, and uh, the office of the Attorney General in Baja California was uh, estimated at a price of $300,000 in 2002, was sold apparently uh, for, for that uh, price. The sources are Proceso Blancornelas, the journalist from, from Baja California and, and uh, Valdez, the ex-head of CISEN. The hegemony that the Arellano Felix managed to establish <coughs> in, uh, in the Tijuana-San Diego corridor was soon the object of uh, pressure from the Drug Enforcement Agency that unleashed a number of operations since, since the early days and this opened up the space for the first uh, criminal war between El Chapo and uh, the Arellano Felix. And if you look at the homicide rate in Baja California and in Tijuana, it's very clear that those moments of intense criminal competition coincide with a peak in the homicide rate. Um, notwithstanding this, uh, the hold of the Arellano Felix was maintained through most of the, of the decade. I don't have time to go into the details, every single detail of the, the way this unfolded, but let me just refer to the way in which uh, the, the resort to extreme forms of violence, which included um, the, the recruitment of what the literature refers to as narco juniors, both to transship the cocaine as well as to use them as contract killers, um, allow the Arellano Felix to resort to exemplary type of violence, which was not as widespread as one, uh, one may imagine, but it was symbolically powerful to deter competitors. 
already uh, there are indications that their victims would be beat to death, and of course there is uh, what we now know about the man who disintegrated 300 bodies, uh, the pozoleros. So uh, this is a clear indication of the way uh, uh, in which uh, this trafficking organization kept its control over the, that territory. The, the spike in the violence nevertheless coincided with a moment of uh, more intense competition with the Chapo, which in turn was very clearly linked to the last capture of the brothers, uh, Javier Arellano, by an operation by the Drug Enforcement Agency that was relentless. Um, and, and in the course of these operations, uh, these uh, agencies resorted to all types of measures that would contravene any standard of human rights, norms, or principles that we would uh, identify or that we would be able to uh, accept as a standard use of covert operations, the toleration of many of the violence that I have referred to. Um, and uh, the, the last spike, as, as the Drug Enforcement Agency unleashed its final offensive against the Arellano Felix then, the space was clear for El Chapo to seize control of Tijuana. And an indication, I think, that gives you an idea of the power developed by the chapel to uh, seize control of the area uh, is given by the fact that he was able to build about 180 tunnels across the U.S. border. That gives, I think, an idea of, of that power. But the final point uh, in the criminal competition um, uh, had to do uh, with the way in which the Drug Enforcement Agency, in fact, resorted to the help of the Chapo and informants linked to El Chapo to unleash the final assault on the Arellano Felix. And, and, and we see once and again that kind of pattern in, uh, in the way in which drug policy uh, proceeds and uh, as it proceeds in a way uh, uh, drives uh, violence and, and, and this type of human rights violations. The, the Sinaloa cartel uh, and the battle for Juarez uh, has um, a similar logic. Uh, Juarez had remained uh, the stronghold of the Juarez Chihuahua cartel for a long time, but then one incident, one unexpected incident, which was the death in 1997 of Amado Carrillo opened up uh, the space for criminal competition and for a spike uh, in violence. It had been preceded by challenges, by criminal challenges, including an attempt on Amado Carrillo's life in 1993 by El Chapo in Mexico City. But on the whole, uh, uh, the plaza remained uh, very much in the hands of the Juarez cartel, thanks again to the way in which they were able to uh, buy uh, police, uh, police control. There is one factor that has been identified in the literature recently to try to explain also the way in which violence has become ever more indiscriminate, and that has to do with the way in which the cartels were forced to develop their own coercive uh, branches, and in doing that, resorted to gangs. And this was uh, a very significant factor in the case of Juarez, where the number of gangs was estimated at about 300, just in Ciudad Juarez, including 15,000 young males, and it would reach to 25,000 if we consider uh, members of gangs across uh, the U.S. Uh, the goal set a military uh, drug cartel at war in Nuevo Laredo. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to rush through this so that we can uh, get to the, to the questions. It has a, a very particular uh, 
feature or a very particular character to it in the sense that it was the first drug organization to develop a coercive branch through the CETAS. And uh, uh, this uh, granted the, the Gulf cartel uh, a very uh, particular uh, or, or a especially violent uh, identity. Uh, another uh, argument that has been put forward to account for the way in which this cartel became ever more indiscriminate and violent has to do with the fact that there wasn't a family structure behind the Gulf Cartel and that once Ociel was captured in 2003, then the intersign competition for the control of the organization uh, became, in fact, a, a very uh, violent divorce, if you like, between uh, or an attempt by the CETAS to take over the control of, of the Golfo and eventually a divorce. This, this wars uh, would develop uh, into ever more uh, violent confrontations once the Sinaloa cartel divided uh, from the Beltran Leiva upon the arrest of one of the, of the Beltran Leivas, and as the Gold cartel also divided from, from the Zeta cartel, and that said, that created a criminal nightmare for, for Mexican authorities. But let me turn now to the main point about the explanation for the spike in the violence in 2007 uh, in, in Mexico. And um, some of you may have been able to follow the debate that took place in uh, Nexos among a number of experts. Uh, there, in, in retrospect, there is consensus that, as I have tried to explain, the violence preceded Calderón. It was very clearly already there uh, during the Fox years, and it was very clearly aggravated and exacerbated by drug policy achievements and, and drug policy decisions. Um, but there is a need to explain the turning in 2007, and, and in that regard, there is uh, a debate with some experts agreeing on the whole that the violence preceded the Calderon, but that something happened in 2007. And it comes down uh, to basically those who argue that the all-out war declared by Calderon uh, was uh, uh, inevitable, given the way in which criminal wars were already unfolding and gathering force among criminal organizations. And uh, therefore, uh, the Calderon administration does the view of people like Poiré and Joaquin Villalobos, who claimed that uh, uh, there was the need, it was imperative to respond to what was going on. Uh, there was no choice but to deploy uh, the troops, which had already been deployed in some parts of the country, including at the request of PRD governors, clearly in Michoacán, and Guerrero, where some of these wars among the major cartels were projected onto Guerrero and, and Michoacán. But there is a second uh, question which concerns the way in which uh, the military deployment uh, was planned and, and, and was deployed. Um, and while uh, some, including Valdez Castellanos, the ex-head of, of CISEN, uh, agrees that uh, uh, the, the military deployment may have exacerbated the violence. There was little choice given the way in which the trust that had uh, uh, allowed some of these criminal organizations to coexist in the first period of the opening of the cocaine economy uh, had uh, uh, come to an end and had been replaced by increased competition and uh, by increased uh, violence and by the increasing recruitment, including of gangs, uh, as was the case in uh, uh, Ciudad Juarez, particularly, but also uh, in Tijuana, where some of the gangs were recruited uh, in San Diego. Uh, 
but there is the uh, the further uh, concern about the way or the further uh, debate about the way in which uh, the military were deployed and uh, among some government experts there was a view that they knew who the criminals and, and the leaders of the criminal organizations were they had a, a list the Calderon administration published a list in 2009, the first list of 30-something names, and therefore, uh, and that is the conclusion of the chapter, that uh, that doctrine, together with the military deployment, set the stage for a type of indiscriminate violence in which uh, many of the drug dealers who were recruited by these drug organizations um, were detained by the army. This is, this is very clearly the case in, in Juarez. Were uh, detained by the army, forced to confess where drug warehouses were, and having confessed, they were then uh, left at the mercy of rival organizations. The market had fragmented, had completely, uh, uh, yes, fragmented as a result of, of, of drug policy and criminal competition. And uh, in that scenario, the deployment of the army to try to identify those 37, 200, uh, according to other sources, created the conditions for a total nightmare in which uh, those who were part of an illicit economy without necessarily being part of the core criminal organizations were identified as very important sources of information and at the point of uh, trying to get the information from them were then uh, exposed to, to the type of, of violence, almost extermination, that uh, explains uh, the spike in violence in Chihuahua and possibly the fact that only 2.4% of the deaths were uh, accounted for over that period. <laughs>